Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Velocity Church Podcast. We love to hear about life change in our church. So if you have a story about how Velocity has made a difference in your life, send us an email at amen at findvelocity.org. Now sit back and enjoy today's message. Really excited to bring the word to, to share with you guys. What I want to share with you today is, is a message that, 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 that God has been speaking to me for a really long time. And you've probably heard Pastor Justin say that when he preaches, often he, these are messages that God gives him for himself and he has the ability to share it with other people. I just want you to know that that's, that has been my experience prepping this message this week. This is, a, this is something God's been had on my heart for a while, and so I'm just really, really excited to get to share, and I hope it brings you um, some, I hope it speaks to you, I hope there's a word here somewhere that, that, that you can grab onto, carry out throughout your week, and man, it's tough following up the five for five last week, man, who was, who was there, let's round of applause, man, it was crazy, if you were not there, man, you miss so much when you miss a week at Velocity Church. And I just love being part of a church where we have a pastor who's not selfishly holding on to this microphone and guarding this platform, but is open to allowing people to hear the word spoken from a lot of different perspectives, from a lot of different places, from a lot of different positions. And so I'm just grateful for that. So I'm coming between five for five and God at the movies, man. God at the movies kicks off next week. Josh talked about it. God at the movies is going to be amazing. And you do want to invite those friends. That's why you have those invite cards. We're going to be doing all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, we're, we're, we're an over the top place if you've been here. So, um, we're really excited about it, but I just want to get into the word today. We're going to be talking about, about Moses. Hopefully most of you have at least heard of Moses. Um, pretty powerful figure in the old Testament. Looks like Charlton Heston, right? He's got the beard and the, I always think about like the, the, the movie poster where he's like standing up on the mountain and there's a lightning bolt coming down on him. Like clearly a powerful, influential figure in the Old Testament, um, rescued from a floating basket in the Nile, um, rescued the... Israelites from Egypt. I mean, the, the Old Testament is just filled with Moses' influence. So when you see these, these, these just powerful characters, these powerful people of God in the Bible, I don't know if you feel like this, but a lot of times I struggle to relate with them a little bit. I see, uh, I read these stories of these amazing acts of faith, of these people just stepping out, um, following God's guidance, and I, and, I, and I often feel like that I come up short but in digging into this message this week, man, it's so reassuring to dig in the word because I love how God puts things in the word to reassure us, to let us know these are real people and they struggled with the same kinds of things that we struggled with. But Moses is a, is a big time figure. I mean, if you were making the Mount Rushmore of the Bible, like Moses would be one of those faces carved into the side of the mountain. But what I wanna focus on is a period of Moses' life that gets very little attention. In fact, it gets so little attention, we don't even really hear about it in the Bible. If you read the story of Moses, we're gonna start in Exodus chapter two. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead, open those up, Exodus chapter two. If you don't, we're gonna put the words on the screen. We got this ginormous Bible right behind me, so we're gonna put that up for you guys. But where we're gonna spend most of our time is actually in between a couple of verses in, in Exodus chapter two, in between verses 10 and 11. There's just all this context between this passage of time that I think is worth exploring. But let me give you some backstory first. We're gonna put these words on the screen. You can follow along with me. So Exodus chapter two starts, now a man of the tribe of Levi 
married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and with pitch. Then she placed the child in it among the reeds in the banks of the Nile. His sister stood in a, at a distance to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became his son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew you out of the water. So that's verse 10, and verse 11 starts off, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Will you pray with me, and then we'll get into this word together. Father God, I just thank you for the opportunity to come together with my downtown church family to, um, to, to receive the word that you have for us, God. And I ask in this moment, I, I, I know I need your help, God. I'm just asking you uh, to speak through me. Let me be a vessel. Let these be uh, your words, your thoughts, your intentions, not my thoughts, my words, or my intentions, God. Just, just help, to, help to guide me and, and, and help me to uh, speak the words that reach your people here today. I just thank you for that opportunity, God. Amen. So where we pick things up, the backstory here is that Pharaoh has basically enslaved the entire Hebrew nation, ordered that all of the Hebrew male children at birth be killed by throwing them into the River Nile. So this is the backstory for our introduction to Moses. We're told about his birth. We're told that his parents um, tried to protect him from this decree and save him, but they realized a few months in, not viable, they're not gonna be able to pull this off. And so in verse five, we see infant Moses being pulled out of the water. So his, his, his mother, in some way, kind of honors Pharaoh's decree to cast her son into the Nile, but is clever and puts him in a waterproof basket that saves his life. And so Pharaoh's daughter rescues him, and he receives his name, which literally means drawn out of the water. And verses six through 10 talk about how he was raised in Pharaoh's house as a favored child, basically as Pharaoh's grandson. Verse 11 starts with one day after Moses had grown up. So we see Moses in those immediate months after his birth as an infant. We know that as a small child, he was raised by his birth mother, but we don't get a lot of details about it. And then we basically just skip ahead to hear about Moses as an adult. So the Bible doesn't give us details about what Moses' life was like in the meantime. But fortunately, we can look at other sources. We can look at historical records from what life was like in ancient Egypt. We can look at, at records kept by other, uh, by other historians about Moses and fill in some of these details that the Bible omits. So I, I just want to go through this with you, speculate a little bit about what Moses was like and the conditions through which he grew up. So... It's clear that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's court. But the weird thing is, is that it also makes clear that his identity as a Hebrew was never really hidden. It wasn't hidden from Moses, and it, and it wasn't hidden from Pharaoh. So that put Moses in a difficult spot. 
Um, he was cared for as a child by his birth mother, who undoubtedly would have told him about his true identity. Um, Hebrews and Egyptians are ethnically different, so they would have looked different, despite the fact that Moses adopted the customs and styles of the Egyptian people. And then you have the issue of his name, which means pulled out of the water, which is literally a reminder anytime anybody hears it about, about Moses' lineage and where he came from. And so we know that Moses is feeling this tension because the verse, and we'll talk about these verses, the verses go on to show that he felt that conflict of the position in which he was raised and the, and, and the circumstances in which he was born. Despite this fact, Moses is uh, still a favored son in Pharaoh's house. He's raised as the child of Pharaoh's daughter. And this means he lived a life of privilege that even in today's society, we can't really even begin to imagine. Um, it's not an uncommon thing for children of conquered people to be integrated, brought into, assimilated into royalty within the families of their conquerors. That was a common tactic that was used to just assimilate culture. Um, and, but we see that, and, and, and we hear in historical record, that, that Pharaoh is believed to not have any other male heirs. So despite the fact that Moses was adopted, there is a legitimate chance that he's in line for the throne after Pharaoh dies. Egypt is one of the most advanced societies in the world at this point. So it's, it's realistic to think that Moses would have been raised with all those advantages. He would have learned, he would have learned written language at a time in which written language wasn't a very common thing in the world. He would have learned math, he would have learned philosophy, he would have learned law. So he would have had all these advantages that literally no other Hebrew would have had. And we know that that's true because uh, Stephen, when recounting the story of Moses, says as much. In Acts 7.22, he says, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deed. This also means that Moses was a prince in a kingdom that treated its king like a god. So think about the implications for what this meant for how Moses was raised. He was constantly in a position of high status. As he traveled around, he would be recognized as, as an adopted son of the Pharaoh. It's likely when he traveled, people would literally bow to him as he came in. He would, he would want for nothing, only the best food, the best entertainment, the best culture, the best teachers, all of the best would be made available to him. And so he lived this life of royalty, life of wealth, and life of comfort in Egypt. So you can sort of put, if you put yourself in Moses' shoes, you can sort of see how these two things, his Hebrew heritage and his Egyptian upbringing, come together to make him feel like he's in a position to do something about the enslavement of his people. And you can sort of see, like, if I were Moses, I would start thinking immediately, man, I'm part of these Hebrews, but I have favored status in the Egyptian nation. Certainly, this is something that God has put in place to give me the opportunity to be a liberator of my people. And we see that Moses kind of thinks that same thing. He's uniquely positioned, well-educated, held in favor. But let's be honest. Moses' plan to liberate the people from the inside was probably pretty unlikely to work. 
So how do we reconcile those things? Because if you're him, you feel like God has put me in this place. And maybe for some of you, you've experienced this, where you felt, man, it feels like God has put me in this place for a purpose. And then you think about how to, how to fulfill that purpose, you go about acting on it, and maybe things don't work out the way that you think they're going to. And that's the story of Moses. So why is his plan unlikely to work? Let's explore that together a little bit. First, there's the issue of his name, as I talked about. Think about who Pharaoh was. If you know this story, he was a hugely insecure leader, cruel, uh, ruled with an iron fist. No one questioned Pharaoh because he was literally seen as a god in his culture. So he has this person in his court that looks like the people he's conquered that he's worried about keeping in subjugation, which is the whole reason for killing the, firstborn, killing the male children uh, in the first place. Imagine that you're Moses, you look like a Hebrew, you're in his court, your name is pulled out of the water. Man, I can't imagine, it, it, we don't get any details about interactions between Pharaoh and Moses in his child and his young adulthood, but I can't imagine that Moses carried the favor with Pharaoh that maybe he thought that he would have in moving, in moving to change uh, the, the course of the destiny of the Hebrew people. More importantly, if we read through these verses, it becomes clear that Moses just wasn't ready to lead. How many of you guys are familiar with John Maxwell? A few of you. John Maxwell is maybe the greatest living author of leadership in, in the world. He writes amazing books, both secular and Christian, about how to be a leader in your organization, whether you're the boss, whether you're an employee, whether you're the parent, whether you're the child, whether you're the friend. He's, he uh, eats, sleeps, and breathes leadership. And I have had the privilege of seeing him speak and reading some of the books that he's written. I have to say, he's, he's one of the people that has most influenced how I've approached leadership in this church with my family, with my coworkers at KU, with my friends. It's just been a game changer for me. And, and you can learn so much by just picking up something that he's written and just thumbing through it. But one of the things that was most profound to me is uh, one, of the, one of the early lessons that I learned was that leaders reproduce themselves. So whatever kind of leader you are, that's the kind of people that you will produce. And so um, it's fair to think that Moses, in his early leadership, would have learned leadership at the feet of Pharaoh. So if leaders reproduce themselves, we would expect Moses to adopt some of those characteristics. And so let's dig in a little bit. Let's see what Moses does next. We're going to pick back up in verse 11 and see what we can learn about how he approached leadership and make inferences about what he's learned from Pharaoh. So verse 11, continuing where we left off, says, He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me just like you killed this Egyptian? And just pause for a sec, like think how shocking this would be to, to Moses. So we see before he's, he's killed an Egyptian overlord, basically, buried him in the sand. He's looked around. He doesn't think anybody has seen it, but now the word is out, which means that the word got out because the Hebrew man that he saved told people about it. Think about how this would affect Moses and kind of knock him off of, his, um, knock him off of the platform where he has seen himself being groomed to be. 
And we see Moses thinking exactly that. Said Moses was afraid and he thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. This passage is really telling to me about how Moses saw himself and how he approached leadership, and it demonstrates that he just wasn't ready to fill the role that he thought he was purposed to do. So let's unpack the why a little bit. First, Moses clearly saw leadership as a noun, as, as a, a, something, a position one holds, something one is, rather than a verb, something that one does. Pharaoh had authority over everyone by the position of his birth, and so um, wasn't necessary for Pharaoh to build people up, to gain consensus. He could rule as an authoritarian, as a dictator. Um, at Pharaoh's position was one that was given, not one that was earned. And so when we look at Pharaoh, how Pharaoh acted, it's clear that he very much viewed himself entitled to be a leader, not something that he earned by building consensus or building people up. And so um, Moses' actions show those same behaviors. He is so shocked when uh, the Hebrew man questions him or starts to question him, it seems to me as though looking into it like Moses never even considered the possibility that this would happen. And it throws him off. He runs. So Moses would have seen himself as royalty. Commoners did not question royalty. It wasn't their place. But the reality is history shows over and over and over again that trying to lead from a position of authority is never sustainable in the long run. Second, Moses isn't fit at this point to lead because he doesn't recognize the dangers of his own impulsiveness. He saw the Egyptian beating the Hebrew man, and although he clearly knew what he was doing was wrong, and we know that because the verse tells us as he approached, he looked this way, and look that to see if anyone was watching. That's not the action of somebody who's confident in what the action they're taking is the right thing. You're only looking around to see who sees you if you're worried about what they might think and what they might say. So we see Moses looking this way and that, gets involved in this altercation, and Moses can't stop himself from acting out in anger. It isn't clear, and the Bible doesn't tell us, if Moses sought out to commit murder or he got involved in an altercation that escalated that led to that, we don't know. But it is clear that at this moment, Moses let his emotions get the best of him. Effective leaders learn to manage their emotions, manage their triggers, and lead effectively despite those things. Do you know about triggers? Triggers are those little things that when they happen, um, generate an irrational emotional response to you. And here's the thing, all of you have triggers. I have triggers, you have triggers, we all have them. They're an artifact of, of experiences we had growing up, a whole number of other things. And those triggers can vary. Maybe for you it's you get triggered when somebody questions your authority. Maybe you get triggered when somebody ignores you. Maybe you get triggered when somebody is smothering. But we all have those things. And if we don't learn to control those, the, the natural but irrational emotional response we have to those things, it undercuts our ability to be leaders. And we see in this moment that um, Moses, just like Pharaoh, didn't have the self-control or the strategies to limit his, his, his reaction when triggered emotionally. But most importantly, I think the reason that um, Moses 
wasn't ready to lead is because at this point, he's too big for God to use. During this time, it seems clear to me as I read through this that Moses saw himself and not God as the redeemer of the Hebrews. And it's striking when you read Exodus chapter 2, the word God doesn't even appear until the last verse. And that's not a verse that has anything to do with Moses. So Moses is trying to accomplish something noble, something admirable, something that's consistent with God's will is to free the Egyptians from slavery and from bondage, but he's trying to do it in the wrong way. He's trying to do it leaning on his own understanding, leaning on his own power um, and, and, and his own will. And so it isn't clear really what Moses wanted to happen, but it seems like maybe he figured that these Hebrews would recognize him as the instigator of a revolution and just fall in line. And then they would, who knows, start an uprising that would lead to, um, to the Israelites being freed. It's a tenuous plan. Uh, and what Moses missed in this moment was that God's plan was so much bigger for Moses than Moses' plan for Moses was. If you, if you look at the action, Moses went after this low-level lackey in the Egyptian hierarchy. I mean, this is a guy who's overseeing workers. God's plan wasn't for Moses to confront a low-level worker of Pharaoh. God's plan was for Moses to confront Pharaoh himself. And God's plan wasn't for Moses to fly into action and get physically involved but if you read through the story, you see God's plan for Moses was for Moses to confront Pharaoh, stand steady, and witness God at work. And so because Moses circumvents that plan and goes with his own plan that's built on his own emotional responses, his own, his own immaturity as a leader, he undercuts what God can do. So before God can use Moses, he has to humble him, and he has to build his faith. So the combination of all these things mean Moses is not ready yet. And at the end of Exodus chapter 2, we see what happens when we substitute our plan for God's. Moses fails. His own people betray his confidence. They spread rumors about him. He is unwelcome in his birth nation and in his adopted nation. And so what happens? Moses flees. He flees to a remote area remote rural area where he's alone. And for 40 years, he stays there as a laborer in his father-in-law's sheep pastures. And you wanna talk about humbling, like God had him work for his father-in-law for 40 years. Like, uh, I mean, you think about like the irony of being, I'm the next in line for the throne, and now I'm a hired servant of my father-in-law. It, it just shows um, the, it shows the lesson that God needed to work in Moses before he was ready to be in that position. So put yourself in his shoes. Man, if I were Moses, I would wake up every morning thinking, God gave me my shot. I had it all. I had all the tools. I had all the talent. I had all the opportunity. I had all the resources. And you know what? I blew it. And so Moses, you can imagine, wakes up every day for 40 years in a field besides sheep that he's now leading. God takes away his ability to lead people and he's leading a flock of sheep. You can imagine how Moses felt. But that brings me, and this is a long way to get to it, but it brings me to the title of my message today. And the title of my message is God Isn't 
done. I was in Boston a few years ago. Um, I was a groomsman in a wedding of a close, close friend. I went to a little tiny high school. Our graduating class, well, I mean, little tiny by Kansas standards is a little different than little tiny by most places. But my graduating class was like 35 people. And my school was K-12, which meant that I was, I was hanging out with the same people, basically from fifth grade through 12th. So the groomsmen, I was a groomsman in a friend's wedding, and this is one of those guys. Like, he's, lit- he's part of almost every childhood memory that I have. Uh, um, our families were close. He was a college roommate. We made incredibly bad decisions together. Uh, that's, that's a whole different story, whole different sermon. But, um, but this was one of my best friends in life. Life being what it was, though, we'd sort of drifted apart. That happens. Um, really close in high school, really close in college. He moved to Boston to go to grad school at MIT. Super smart kid, literal rocket scientist. Um, I moved to Lawrence, Kansas. And, and to be honest with you guys, never on the radar before the job at KU showed up but to be a new professor, um, and we just hadn't really talked that much. So it's also true that um, I didn't know it at the time, but God brought me to Lawrence, Kansas through KU to connect me here at Velocity Church. Like I, I have been brought closer to God than, not just closer than I ever have been, but closer than I ever thought I was entitled to, closer than I ever thought I could be through this church. But my friend has, isn't and hasn't ever been a believer. He had a secular wedding and just had another friend fill out some paperwork so he could be, so he could be legally certified to marry them. And it was, in many ways, it was such an amazing weekend. Um, but I don't want to bore you with all the details, so I'm going to skip to one event in that weekend that I want to tell you about. How many of you guys married or been part of a wedding, groomsman or bridesmaid or something like that? Like weddings are frantic, right? So I mean the day of, so many things going on, everybody's moving everywhere, you know, our photographers are showing up, grabbing people randomly out of the ceremony to go take pictures of them and those kinds of things. So, so if you know the chaos of a wedding, you'll know how rare and special what I'm about to tell you is. I found myself with my, with my friend and with his bride-to-be in their prep room a few minutes before the ceremony was about to start, and it was just the three of us. And so we're there, they're about to get married, and this is, this is something, it's, it's honestly, it's hard for me to talk about, it's hard for me to explain, but in that moment, I received what I, what I recognized even immediately was a command from the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't happen to me that often. It hasn't happened to me that often, and it definitely hadn't happened very much up till this point. If you've never experienced it, I can't explain it, but it was obvious to me that the words in my head were not authored by me. They were put there, and those words were very simple. Pray with them. Now, think about where this put me. These are friends that I've known forever with his new wife, who I don't know that well. I know that they're not believers, and I haven't, he doesn't know all of my story at Velocity because we've sort of drifted apart. And so I wish that I could tell you that in that moment that I listened 
to that command that I receive and that I just boldly prayed over them and with them and asked God's blessing on their marriage. I wish I could tell you that I did that. But what I'm gonna tell you is, is, is it's hard for me to talk about, but I didn't. Uh, I didn't for a number of reasons. I didn't because I told myself I didn't wanna make them feel uncomfortable, that this was their day and who was I to intrude on it. I told myself that I was unqualified to do that, um, that who am I to pray over somebody? I told myself I'm not really very good at praying and so I would probably say the wrong things. I told myself, I told myself, I told myself, and the moment passed. The wedding coordinator showed up, grabbed them, escorted them out, the wedding happened, the weekend went on, amazing weekend, but the second they walked out that door, had a knot in the pit of my stomach. In that moment, I knew that I'd received something from God and that I had turned away from it. And man, I can't explain to you how, pain, how, how, how painful that was, even immediately, because God had given me a clear instruction and I fell short. I wasn't bold enough to do it. And I thought, I thought at that moment, I thought to myself, man, I blew it. I had this chance. God orchestrated this. He put all of these plans in places before the beginning of time for this to happen. And all he, he set it all up. And all I had to do was follow through. And I was too weak. So let's fast forward a little bit. The moment was gone. Um, that knot is still there. It's the next day. My friend is driving me to the airport. My wife and I to to fly back to Kansas. Um, we're in the car with him, maybe a half hour drive, and I'm just feeling sick this whole time over this missed opportunity. And I'm thinking, what can I do? What can I do? It, I, I, and I come to the conclusion that there's not anything, I've, I've missed it, like it's, the window is closed. And my friend turns to me as we're approaching the entrance to the airport and says, hey, with everything that's been going on, I haven't had a chance to talk with you. But a couple of weeks ago, I saw on Facebook, um, I saw on Facebook, somebody had posted a link to a sermon that you had preached at a church called Velocity. And he said to me, I just wanted you to know that I listened to that sermon while I was at work. And I wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed listening to it do you get the opportunity to do that very often? And here's what I want to tell you. God isn't done. God didn't write Moses off at the end of Exodus chapter 2. In chapter 3, we see God isn't done with Moses, and he hasn't forgotten about him. And we know this because God's first words to Moses are to call to him by his name after 40 years of Moses living in the wasteland thinking that he's been parked, been set aside for another plan, God calls to him. He's not an afterthought anymore. God knew Moses, and Moses was important to him. And we see that Moses' time in exile wasn't wasted, and we know that by his reaction. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses was the cocky, arrogant prince of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is the mature, humble man who's ready to listen to God. And we know this because he 
not only obeys God's calling, but he hides his face from God, acknowledging God's position over him. Moses' first words to God reflect that newfound humility where he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Forty years earlier, Moses thought he knew who he was, and he thought he had everything figured out, that he was the guy that was going to set his people free. But now, he doesn't have that arrogance. And what I want you to hear is, I think the best and most inspiring part of this entire thing for me is God's answer to Moses' question of, who am I that I, should go to, that I should go to Pharaoh? When you read it, you realize God doesn't even answer that question. He rejects it. Moses says, who am I? And God responds to him, I will be with you. God uses Moses' question to shift the focus off of Moses and where it should be, on God. Moses, after living with his own failure for all of these years, is finally in the position to be used by God to deliver his people. And so I want, what I want you to hear today is a message about God, a message about what God remembers, what God knows, and what God forgets. Remembering means something different to God than it does to us. When the Bible says God remembers, it's not like when you remember something that is popped out of your mind and then popped back in. Remembering to God means an intentional movement towards an object of his memory. To God, to remember is an act, and God remembers his promises. His promises to us his promises to you, to be with you, to be for you, to help you, to protect you, and to grow you. Let's talk about what God knows. God knows your strengths. He knows your weaknesses. He knows you inside and out better than you know yourself. God knows the successes that you've had. God knows the mistakes that you've made, the times you tried to do it alone without him, the times that he had his hand outstretched to you almost exactly within your reach and you chose not to reach out and take it. God knows the times you were joyful, the times you were sad, the times you were angry, the times you were afraid. God knows you. But in the same way that God remembers, God also forgets. Forgetting for God isn't the same as forgetting for us. Like I forgot where I put my tablet charger this morning. (laughs) To forget for God is to intentionally set something aside, to choose not to remember it anymore, to take something and not give it influence. So we have a God that knows us, we have a God that remembers his promises, and we have a God that forgets your sins. He takes them and buries them in his endless, boundless, limitless, unconditional grace. I love how it says, what it says in Isaiah 43, verse 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I don't know what suffering you've been through, what you're going through right now. I can't tell you how long it'll last. I wish I had those answers to provide you. I don't know all that God is doing, 
in your life or why he hasn't given you the relief or the things that you've been asking for, but God knows. Like me in that moment with my friend or like Moses in Egypt, maybe you feel like you had your shot, you had your chance, and you missed it, that you threw it away. That God has parked you in a distant place and forgotten about you. But just like Moses, I want you to hear that God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't missed your prayers. He hasn't closed his eyes and his ears to you. Whatever you're going through, I want you to be confident that God knows and that he is always behind the scenes working on your behalf. God isn't done.